Hi, and welcome to Pathways, the podcast by Grenadian Steam. This is the show where we chat with Grenadians and other West Indians pursuing careers in the steam fields to learn about the reasons they got into the industry, the struggles they have faced, and some tips and tricks they may have picked up along the way. I'm your host and president of Grensteam, Arlene Hayes. In this season, we are putting the focus on those who are doing it best right at home. Science, technology, engineering, architecture, and math exist all around us, even though we may not always realize it. And there are lots of openings for these skill sets to be used on the island. So join us as we talk about STEAM in Grenada and hear about some local businesses that you might want to get involved with and support. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with the Mexican-born, trained architect and co-owner of the True Blue Bay Boutique Resort, Mrs. Magdalena Fielden. Magdalena moved to Grenada with her husband Russ and their young family in 1998 and bought what was then a bankrupt seven-cottage inn in True Blue Grandans. She has no doubt employed her architectural skills and good taste to develop the inn into an environmentally sustainable 70-room resort that we know today, complete with a restaurant and bar, marina, dive center, spa, yoga studio, and bakery. In her quest to develop enticing activities for her guests, Magdalena stumbled into the world of fine chocolate in Grenada, which led her to create the Grenada Chocolate Festival in 2013, and to go on to establish the House of Chocolate Museum Café on Young Street in St. George's. It has also afforded her a wealth of knowledge, which she was so kind to share with me during this conversation. I hope you enjoy the wide-ranging and all-encompassing nature of today's discussion, but be warned, it might just leave you craving a little sweet milk. This episode is graciously sponsored by the True Blue Bay Boutique Resort. If you are interested in sponsoring one of our episodes, or would like to learn more about the packages we offer, please reach out to us at admin at grensteam.org. That's A-D-M-I-N at grensteam, G-R-E-N-S-T-E-A-M dot O-R-G. Hi, Magdalena, and welcome to Pathways. Arlene, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, and thank you for inviting me. Of course. Thank you for joining. So... As we get started here, um, for a little bit of background on you, I know you weren't born in Grenada, but you moved there in the late 90s, 98, I believe. Um, and so you might not be Grenadian, but at this point, I think you might have lived there longer than some of the people that I've spoken to. So tell us a little bit about what brought you to the Spice Isle. Yes, thank you. Well, um, I've been in Grenada now 20, almost 22 years, and I was born in Mexico City, and I lived there. Uh, now, I think I have lived in the Caribbean longer than I have lived in Mexico, really? wow. <laughs> so about the same time. So um, it gets confusing after a while when people ask you, where are you from? Of course, been in Grenada for 20 years, I have my Grenadian nationality that I'm very proud of, too. But also, of course, I have my roots from Mexico, too. 
So we're brothers from Granada. It's a bit of a long story, but mainly, um, you know, uh, I met my husband in Mexico sailing. Mm-hmm. And then he was moved to the Caribbean. It's when I discovered the Caribbean. I went to live in, in Tortola. And then he was director of operations at a company that they sell yachts. So they were, the company was growing and they were moving him. When I started working with him, too. So we were, the two of us were, they were moving us around. So we went to open a place in San Martin. Uh, we moved back to Tortola. We went to the, to San Lucia. We lived in San Lucia for a while, but we always, uh, he, we came to Granada a couple times, but we always love Granada because it seems just like a really nice, happy, beautiful place. So we always were happy when we came to Granada. Originally, when we started working for the company, instead of going to San Martin, we were going to come to Granada, but unfortunately it didn't happen and we didn't go to San Martin. Or fortunately, I don't know, who knows how, how luck works in life. Right. So, um, you know, so we worked together for a few years and, and then, uh, we had two kids, my daughters, Marie and Renata. And, uh, Marie was born uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Renata was born in Florida. And we ended up living in Florida for a couple of years. And, you know, we, we always want to come back to the Caribbean. And my husband was ready to move jobs. And we thought, that, let's go back to the Caribbean. So the first job that my husband found was in, in Tortola. But then um, a little bit later on, because I was busy being a mom, you know, they were little, they were five and three years old. Right. Uh, so we looked in Tortola and we couldn't really find a business that we would like to get into it. And then a friend of ours called us from Granada and said, uh, you know, guys, I remember you like this plantation house and it's for sale. You want to come and look at it? So Ross came to look at it and he said, it's a beautiful plantation house, but I don't know what we do with it because none of us know anything about agriculture or anything like that. <laughs> we know we've been working in the tourism business for quite a while. So um, he came for lunch to True Blue Bay Resort. Well, it was called True Blue Inn, and he had a little restaurant. And when he was at the restaurant, the friend that was with him said, oh, you know, I remember the display. this place I think is for sale. And my husband got up, no, I don't think that we can afford it. But, um, you know, we ended here. But I must say, before that, we thought, of the countries that we wanted to live with our daughters, it was the rich Virgin Islands, and it was um, well, it was Mexico. But at that time, uh, the economy in Mexico was very bad, and and it was, it was Granada. And I really like Granada because I thought, you know, it has a good education. It's a nice place. The people seem quite nice and happy. For me, they're the nicest people in the Caribbean, and I've been up to a few islands. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, and I love the, the, going back to my architecture, uh, you know, uh, education. I love the little houses that they all had their little gardens and it was clean. And, you know, when we start looking at everything, we thought, like, yeah, Granada is the place for us. So we, uh, we came here, uh, you know, mainly for our kids. Yeah. And they grew, they grown up now and they really, uh, have grown very happily and had a great education here too. That's lovely to hear. And I'm glad I have you on recording saying that you love your <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So a couple of things I want to touch on there. Um, it's interesting because most of the, 
actually all the people I've spoken to up to this point um, have either grown up in Grenada or on a different Caribbean island. So I'm kind of curious now and want to get your backstory because I usually ask, you know, what was what was it like um, growing up as a student and uh, what were you interested in back then? So what was it for like what was it like for you growing up in Mexico and how was school? I don't know if you call it elementary school or primary, secondary. Yeah, primary, secondary school. And, uh, and then you go to, to um, just primary, secondary, high school and then university. Okay. So growing up in Mexico, it was fun. Uh, I, mean, I have a very happy childhood. Uh, I went to a Catholic school. Uh, and they were very kind of straight. We pray a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then I went to, I think it was uh, one of the best secondary schools in, in, in the city uh, because I remember the Minister of Education at the time. Her daughter was in my class. And it was also, it was all girls' school, very strict. You know, the uniform has to be like this and you had to study and you had to behave like a lady. But it was one, I think it was a wonderful, uh, it gave me wonderful pointers for life because like they teach us like how to behave in a, in, 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 in a concert, how to behave in a, if you were in a, in a conference. And they teach us a lot of things, anything from sewing all the way to, you know, public speaking and stuff like that. And, um, and I didn't do that great at secondary school. <laughs> I, I thought, oh, well. Uh, but then from there, I went to high school. And high school was an incredible experience because in Mexico, it was growing so fast. They were opening all these new schools. They were kind of experimental schools. And my school was, the high school was one of the experimental ones. And a lot of the teachers we had were like refugees from South America. You know, because they have problems, mainly Chileans or Argentinians, but we also have a lot of Mexican Mexican teachers. But it was like a very open-minded school. Uh, I remember my dad being totally shocked because I came from this ladies' school to he, the first day of school. He took me there, and the first thing we saw was this massive poster of Che Guevara in the in the front of the school and then it was all these couples kind of making up around the park, the, the <laughs> green areas and my dad was like oh my god <laughs> we sent him this child but it was a public school and, and it was amazing I had some incredible teachers uh, uh, we hear stories from you know the, the, the some of the teachers from South America they what was happening in their country and uh, it was kind of a very revolutionary school and, and my teachers were kind of bothering and hippies, you know, a lot of them were very smart and very caring about who you were and what you were and that you make sure you, you, um, you, you know, you saw your potential. So I really very happy that I got like the other side of that education there. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, it was in a, finishing high school when I, I really didn't have an idea of why I wanted to study, you know, and I was, a, I went to one of my teachers and of course I went to my math teacher and he was like, oh, you should be an accountant. I got like, never. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, another one, she was like, oh, well, maybe you should study, you know, philosophy. I go, I'm not sure about that. But I, I think it was my uh, calculus teacher that she went like, 
you are creative, you know, why don't you go for architecture? Mm. And I mean, my, my grandfather also was very creative. He was a painter and he had a little bit of that education too. And I thought, I never thought about it. It sounds like fun. Yeah. So I took her advice and went for architecture. And then again, I went, I, I mean, I, I studied with the University of Mexico, the, the UNAM, uh, uh, the, it's called uh, Universidad Autónoma de México, but I had a, it was, again, it was under the experimental schools. So um, I was sent up to one of the new schools. I was the third generation uh, of, of that school. Okay. And uh, when uh, it was two, ter- because it's so many people in Mexico, you had like a morning session and an afternoon session in all the schools. So I went into the afternoon session and it was 40 of us in this class. And it was just another girl and me. It was two women in the whole class. And it was very intimidating because I just were like, oh my God. And then we, we came out of school like 10 o'clock at night and my dad and her dad were, we became very good friends, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was just, now that I look back, it's like, oh my God. The world has changed so much because in those days it was two two women yeah. in, in the in the career. And uh, anyway, a little bit later I managed to move to the morning. It was a little bit more convenient for me and less scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was more girls there. We were I think we were about five okay. women in the morning, and then my friend from the afternoon moved to the morning, so we were six women. But it wasn't that many women at the university. Yeah. And um, and it, it was um it, it was uh, in the middle of the of my, of my career, you know, like it, it took me five years to finish uh, university, and in the middle of it, I went like it's too technical for me. I'm more creative, and I should have done something else. But I did finish it. But then at the very end, I realized that what I really loved it was urban planning and urban designing, and that's what I wanted to do. And uh, and when I started working, I started working as a urban planner and designer but what i love of the of my education in mexico is there really was a public education my parents did i mean we we are a poor family really and uh, and my parents did struggle to send me to university because even when we didn't have a tuition mm-hmm. they it was a lot of materials that we used for doing drawings and all that. They, it was very expensive yeah. But they, I mean, thankfully, we, they didn't have to pay more. I mean, you just pay like a fee and that was it. And I think I got an incredible education in Mexico. And that's the way the education should be. You know, kids shouldn't be paying now to, for the future, be in, you know, just owing money to universities and all of that. I think really for the good of the world, education should be public everywhere. Yeah. And also, I got a really nice, Range of educations. When I started traveling later on, because I didn't, I didn't start traveling outside Mexico until I was 24. Uh, when I started traveling, I realized what a good education I had and how many things I knew. Mm-hmm. Because I've been to talking to other people that okay in different places, and, and you go like, wow, how can they know do, know this, or how can they never teach them this at school? And, and you know, and I had music, I had art, I had, like I say, they used to take us to concerts and teachers had to behave in a, in a classic 
a musical concert. And I'm not sure that is being teach anymore at school. And, and it's a shame. I mean, I learned sewing and my kids don't know how to sew now. So it's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it actually doesn't sound too different from um, school that I went to. So I went to convent in Grenada. So, oh, yes. Um, semi, I guess like government, but also Catholic school, very strict. Um, and But you learn lots of lots of like etiquette and manners and how to behave and all of that. And I think it's a little bit different just because, you know, the new generation, it's maybe not as uh, directed as it might have been back in the day. Um, so you don't necessarily like go to concerts and learn how to keep yourself there. But um, yeah, it does seem to be, I see a lot of parallels in, in those two. And then I also went to architecture school. Um, so that's what I had my degree in. and. It's very similar to what you were describing, just long hours, five years. And I think I had a similar experience because halfway through, I was just like, I don't know if this is this is what I want to do. But it was kind of the opposite where I think I'm more of a technical person and um, my degree might have been a little more on the creative side for me. Um, But yeah, I still finished the degree and I kind of got into an adjacent job that in construction management that I think I'm a little more fitted to but yeah it's interesting to hear you know the difference between countries and like years that we've studied and it's still pretty similar oh well, that's wonderful that's great to hear I, I, I really didn't know you're an architect too so hello Cole. <laughs> <laughs> yes so um, so now I understand a bit about how you got into architecture and why. When you got out of school and you started uh, working in urban planning, um, what, what was that career path like? You were working in Mexico at the time? Yeah, I was working uh, in Mexico City. Actually, just coming out of school, one of our teachers was starting a new... Oh, uh, opening a new business with doing urban planning, urban designing, mm-hmm. and he was a, an amazing urban. He, I, I, you know, I was. I've been trying to see if he's still around, but I haven't found him. But he was an amazing urban planner. He was originally from Fra, from Spain, but he escaped the, the revolution in Spain and came to Mexico. And, uh, and he decided to open an office and he invited us, a couple of us, actually, the, the, the girl that was originally with me, uh, Eva, uh, in the, in architecture. She was like our head architect. She's super smart. But mm-hmm. uh, thanks to her, I finished school really because she pushed me and she helped me a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then a couple other people and we started this business and it was fantastic. I really, really loved it because we were traveling a lot in the country. And looking at, at, you know, at how cities should develop because Mexico was growing so quickly. They mainly, we got, uh, contracts from the government to, um, to see, you know, like how these two cities are going to grow, what infrastructure they're going to need, what roads they're going to need, all these things. And, and we had to look at the population. We look, had to look at the culture. So it was like a really comprehensive study to decide where to things and I just thought I was marvelous. So we worked for um for about four years in in doing that. And all our contracts were with the government. And in Mexico we had this terrible thing, the presidents, they I don't know it's too terrible, but it's 
when it comes to economy and, and contingency, I think it is, but a president can only run for one term. Oh. And you don't know what the next president is coming. So when the president at that time, I can't really remember who it was, finished, you know, we thought, oh, they could, we had, I don't know, like 10 contracts. We thought, they're going to cancel, yeah, wow. two, three. We still have half of them. They canceled everything. And they didn't pay us what we needed. So oh. it was not sustainable for us to continue, right. unfortunately. And then um, it, it was very sad because I, I, but I realized that that's what I wanted to do, but I didn't want it to live like that. I didn't want every six years to totally change, mm-hmm. you know, like to what, whatever was coming. And uh, so at that point, I was a bit lost. <laughs> And I didn't know what I wanted to do. I started to working with some architects. And it really, you know, I really didn't feel that great. And, and at that time, I, I went on vacation. And I met somebody that had a boat and invited me to go sailing. And I thought, yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so I dropped everything and went sailing. And my parents, of course, were super disappointed. And, but I feel like, well, I, I don't see, I didn't see getting another good job in, 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 um, urban planning for a little while because it takes like a year for a president to decide which way it's going and, mm-hmm. you know, where the country is going and everything. And I just thought it's going to be a waste. And, you know, why not? If I can go sailing, I go sailing. I thought I go for a couple months. If I like it, great. And I don't like it, I just come back and find another job. Right. And I never get, went back. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so that's that's a really interesting story because it's, I think maybe even more so now, but I'm sure just as much um, back then, it's it's really scary to just stop, you know, what you're doing, what you're used to and not have a, a plan for the future. So to think that you were able yeah. to do that and still found your way. It's kind of inspiring. Well, thank you. But I've been I've been thinking a lot about this uh, at the moment because you know, with the situation in the world at the moment, and that you don't know where you're going, you don't know what's gonna happen. And uh, and I think that I'm very thankful that I had the education to to you know just feel confident that I could do whatever to survive. Right. I didn't know what it was. But I knew that whatever challenge there was, but it was, I didn't know at the time that whatever challenge there was going to put in front of me, I was going to be able to take. But what I realized later on is that thanks to my education, I had that capacity to adapt to whatever was coming my way. So it's why it's very important that, you know, we educate ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so we'll jump forward a little bit um, into what you do now, and I think we'll fill in the gaps in, uh, along the way. So you're now the marketing director and owner of what was True Blue Inn and what is now True Blue Beer Resort. What would you describe your job as to someone who doesn't know what a marketing director does? Wow. Uh, well, let me just go back a little bit. When we started, when we bought the hotel, uh, before that, like when we were working with tourism and that, you know, we were like 
kind of managing people. So we had somebody that sent your faxes, somebody that you told them to do this and that. Mm -hmm. And when we came to True Blue, it was like, we had to do everything ourselves, you know, my husband and I. And it was just the two of us. And we did have a few employees that were here before. And thankfully, one of them, Mary Calise, they also went to a the convent. She was here and she was a great help. She was only an 18 year old at the time. But we had to do everything. We had to do, I, we had to go and clean the rooms, make sure that they we made the beds, uh, you know, uh, do our, uh, our plan that how we're going to sell the rooms, how we're going to get business, how we're going to do this, because the, the, mainly the hotel was bankrupt. And we started with really seven rooms and no, a very nice looking place. So I guess when it when you first bought it, was it still in operation? You just kind of continued and picked up where the previous owner had left off, or did it shut down for a while while you? Uh, no, it was in operation. It was okay. in operation, but because the original owners lost the business to the bank, I see. We really bought the property. We didn't bought the business, so we had no information about the business. Uh, you know, they, we didn't know if they have bookings. We didn't know if the people already pay for, for the rooms. So we really, uh, were like, okay, well, good luck. But, yeah. uh, but like I say, then we had to do everything, everything. Uh, and, uh, thankfully we had Mary that she had a little bit of a, you know, knowledge of what was going on there. And she really chose around the hotel and everything because we didn't really got a, we had a, a live briefing of what it was, but mainly the previous owners didn't want to know about us because we really came and took their business away, you know. So um all of that, I mean, we knew a lot of things already, but we had to learn a bunch of new things. And from from where we the previous company that we were, fortunately they had an incredible team of marketing. And marketing was something totally alien to me. I really didn't know anything about marketing. So I got the I I got the opportunity to work with them a little bit. And it was a a guy that I, I stood my mentor for marketing because I just saw how, how we had, he was doing things. And I never thought I was going to do marketing. I just observed him mm -hmm. and see what he did. So when we got the hotel and we started to do marketing for the hotel, it was like, oh, my God, what we do? And I, I mean, I really never had marketed a hotel before. So we had to learn everything. So we learned from the beginning. Um, and, and marketing is so many things because you need to know the business very well. You not, you need to know your product very well to, and then transmit that knowledge into a message to your clients and, and, and try to, to target the people that you think are going to like your product. Right. You know, so. Can't you imagine in the whole world? <laughs> well, not the whole world, because we knew the markets for Granada were the U.S. and the U.K. mainly. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, where do you start? <laughs> yeah. So uh, actually at that, at that time, I think just as we arrived, the, some of the, um, the flights from the U.S. were canceled and we had the flights from the U.K. So my, I started targeting the U.K. And Along the way, I learned a lot. Um, I, we, we really, uh, associated with the Caribbean Hotel Association. They did a lot of workshops 
for small hoteliers at the time. And uh, I really tried to attend to most of them. I went back to my mentor and told him, what should we do here? What do you think it's like? I mean, everything was kind of trying mm-hmm. and then see what it worked. I mean, I, my husband and I never been short of ideas. We, I, we always had way too many ideas. Yeah. But it's like, which ones were going to work? So, uh, and also, um, we had to have a, a little bit of a marketing plan because like we decided, okay, yeah, we're going to target the UK market, but what is, um, what kind of people are going to like the hotel? You know, and how we reach those people. And, and it's, uh, it, it, the UK market is run by tour operators. They are a little bit of a nightmare sometimes. <laughs> uh, they, they, con- they want to control what, you know, your product and you have to do this. And you want us to sell your hotel. You have to be, do A, B, C, D. And, and a lot of them are used to work with big hotels and they don't understand how a little hotel works. Right. So it was a lot of challenges, but, Learning little by little, looking what to do. And, and also one of the things we decided, you know, the hotel was very quiet and we decided we had to bring action to the hotel. So what other things in our marketing plan we can implement? So we, we decided to, to open a little marina, to open the dive shop, to have a little bigger restaurant, to have a bar in the restaurant. So all these little things start piling and then we start having more attractions for the people. So I think, uh, you know, when you think about somebody doing marketing, it's mainly a company that comes and looks at your, at your company and go like, oh, well, yeah, we can do this and that. But in our case, it was, we were marketing our own product. Right. And we were making our own plans. So it was a, it was a little, a little bit, how can you say? More personalized, you know, yeah. like I, we do work, we did work with a couple of companies that helped us a little bit, you know, like when I remember that we, when we arrived to Granada, we were the first hotel that had a website. We yeah. didn't even have the hotel functioning and we had the website. That was something that we thought that's very important. We don't know why, but it's very important. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> of that, we're starting to develop. Mm-hmm. And now. Uh, and, and, you know, and then you, you had to create your logo and you had to create uh, your image and, and your colors and your scheme and it's so many things. So through the 22 years that we've been here, you know, I mainly been doing quite a lot of the marketing, uh, going to, to travel shows. That is my favorite thing because you get to travel. <laughs> of course. Uh, meeting different people and of course nothing in a market nothing stable you know in 20 years the world has changed so much and the markets had changed so much uh when we started with the british market and it was at one point that our hotel depended on the british market like 70 percent that was a little bit scary and then they canceled the flights and then oh my god now we had to move to the american market uh and it's been back and forth it's not like, oh, well, this is it and this is where I want. And then the trends, you know, the, oh, people are looking for luxury. People are looking for adventure. People are looking for wellness. Yeah. And you just have to be really one step ahead to think what you're going to do. Uh, and it's a lot of observing, a lot of traveling. I, I think traveling has been like my biggest uh, help because I like to go and see what other hotels are doing, what other people are doing. 
Uh, I've been bringing ideas to the hotel from around the places I've been traveling. When I go to Mexico, I go like, oh my God, this, this, and this, bring it in. And, you know, I go to the UK, I go, I had the opportunity to be a little bit around Europe. And uh, in any little idea that I think we can adapt or it will be good for our hotel, I bring it in. And from there, we're starting to create, you know, something that you can market. Yeah. So, you know, then we added the yoga studio, the spa. Now we have a bakery. So all of these things have bring things to us. Uh, so my marketing director, I, I mean, mainly I take kind of the decisions of what direction we're going. But our children at the moment are taking over. And now it's uh, questionable about my uh, <laughs> my direction. So I had to fight for my directions. But uh, I, I must say my kids have great ideas because, again, the world is changing. Yeah. And nothing is static. And it's new trends. I mean, social media has been quite difficult sometimes to understand for me. And my kids are just great at it. Right. So, you know, we're we moving on to another era of marketing. But um, I still tell them that I'm the boss, even when they don't listen to me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I answered your question, but that's more or less, you know, yeah. what I've been doing. So is there any, I know it must come from a lot of different places, but is there any like one or two particular places where you get your inspiration for what you want the hotel to be? Um, I think it's a lot of bits from different places, you know, um, but more than anything is what we look at what we can do here and, and what our, our, how you say, our possibilities are, mm-hmm. our budget, because budget is, is always like what it keeps you sometimes from doing all your dreams. Uh, so I mean, I can't think of anything specific. Like, I know when when we first started in the hotel, my husband and, and I imagined when we look at the land and everything, and we were so excited. We imagined to have like a little kind of Caribbean village look alike. You know, I wanted to have all the colors of the houses that you see in the country. I want to have the gardens. I want to have different levels. Um, in and I think uh, I took a lot of the colors and, and the ideas for architecture, maybe from the Virgin Islands, from the Tortola, because they used to have a beautiful little colorful shop in town at one of the ends in Tortola. I think it's gone all after the hurricane. Uh, I observed a lot at the, at the life in Granada, and I wanted to bring a little bit of that in there. Of course, um, I don't know if you know, but our family is very environmentally conscious. So we wanted to incorporate all of that into the hotel. I like to think ourselves like we are trendsetters yeah. <laughs> more than copiers. Because, I, I, I mean, I remember that with the first thing we, we did when we got the hotel, just to make it look better, I just painted in bright colors. And really, we didn't change anything. And people were coming and going, oh, my God, it looks fantastic. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you done? And you're like, well, it's paint. <laughs> but it's like, um, but then I, I remember when I came to Granada, really and truly all the hotels were beige or 
peach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've gone like, ah. So, uh, I always been a, a great believer, believer of color. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to put that into practice. And then that's when the architecture came on too, because, you know, it's like, oh, I want to do this. And mainly, we always, my husband and I have a job that I dream it and he build it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, um, I think it's, it's a lot of our ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are coming from experience and from different places. Uh, I do remember also the, the infinity pool. We, my husband went to Tahiti. And I think when we him that time, he sent me these pictures of this pool and go like, oh, we have to have a pool like that one day. But, you know, it's like, it, it's like we didn't copy anything. We just adapt what we saw somewhere and ideas to to what Granada is. And I mean, we, we cannot come and build a hotel that is, you know, I mean, you, you've been, I'm sure, to places where you go, this hotel can be, it's, it's in Granada, but it can be anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So I we really wanted something that was very very Grenadian, yeah, Grenadian in you know with our with our ideas of what Grenada was always <laughs> right. But yeah, I think I mean for sure you were talking about the colors and that is definitely a big a big thing in Grenada that all the houses and everything is just like this peach, very monotone. And I think the colors of Trubu Bay are like an icon in that area to be sure like anyway you see the you know the aquas and oranges and the greens and you're like you know exactly where it is no but the colors are in the country i i took some of the colors from the country houses and stuff but yeah. what i mean is the hotels were beige and, and white and mm-hmm. peach and you were like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> and going from mexico where there's so much color you go like no no yeah. no no color color <laughs> <laughs> that was a good move there all right. So you spoke a little bit about being able to bring some entertainment and life to the hotel. And I know one of the major ways that you've done that is through the chocolate industry. So you have the the chocolate festival that happens every year now. And then you even went on to branch out and open the House of Chocolate on Young Street in St. George's. So how and when did you decide to get into the chocolate business? Well, it's a, it's a very long story, but I will try to make it <laughs> as brief. So again, at the hotel, looking into things to do for our guests, mm-hmm. you know, every Christmas we highlighted the 12 days of Christmas and we tried to have a different activity every day. And uh, before that, I went and visited the Granada Chocolate Company once and I, I heard about the chocolate in Granada. It was very good and I thought it was really good and but I, w- I didn't really know, knew much about chocolate, but like it, it came from Mexico in some form. And, uh, but excuse me, I didn't know the whole story. So I invited Maud Green, they was the founder of the Granada Chocolate Company, mm-hmm. to come and, and talk about the, about what he do to the, to the guests and bring some chocolate and do a tasting. So I don't know if you ever met Maud Green. Well, he was a character, yeah. an incredible person, but also a character. So I told him, okay, you know, Friday, five o'clock, make sure you're here, fine. And, and I say, you know, I, I set up like a table with chocolates. We had a chocolate fountain, we put it there and, uh, and put different things to dip in chocolate and stuff. So 
five o'clock came and the mother wasn't there. Five thirty came and you know, and we had people there and I just start kind of saying, Well, let's taste the chocolate and you know, it's a factory here and whatever I remember of the tour I took at the time. And anyway, we everybody very happily ate the chocolate and we had we had a lot of kids, they all had a lot of fun. And I was almost wrapping up and he arrived and I go, like, oh my God. And he goes, Laura, I'm late. And he's like, yes, very late. <laughs> said, well, I have a little presentation. I said, well, I'm going to tell the guests and see they want to stay and listen to the presentation. So I, you know, the kids just left and ran and some of the adults stayed. And then he did the whole presentation of how he established the Granada Chocolate Company. And I really didn't know the story. And I, by the time he finished, we were all like, oh my God, it's incredible. And uh, just very quickly, and the story is that he came, he, his dad was a, a doctor from the university, a visiting doctor. So he used to come a lot to Grenada. Mm -hmm. He grew, grew up in New York, went to university, did engineering. And, uh, and then when he graduated, he decided he didn't want to be in the States. He wanted to be you know, he wanted to be live sustainable. And this is almost 30 years ago. So he was thinking already about sustainability and all of that. Yeah. And he decided he was moving back to Grenada. And apparently he came with a backpack and he was sleeping on the beach. And he met some of the local raster guys. Um, and one of them said, welcome to the country. You know, it's better there and you can eat and find food in the trees and whatever. So he went to the country and then um, he said, well, but we're going to leave. He said, well, we have a little bamboo hut in one of the plantations, so you can sleep there. But he came with his solar panel, so at least he had electricity. And he was living there cooking. You know, a guy from New York came with a tree stone fire and cooking in a pot in the country, and the, I said, wow. the bush. <laughs> and uh, But when he was there, he realized that all the cocoa trees there were abandoned. Nobody was picking up the cocoa. Nobody was doing anything with the cocoa. He started asking why nobody pick up the cocoa. And, you know, always too much work. We don't get paid properly. And, and he said, but, you know, cocoa is very valuable. Let's do something with it. So he started thinking about it. Anyway, a long story short, he, he created, uh, but he started contacting some of the farmers and say, you know, is your cocoa organic or have you put any chemicals in your in your plantation? And some of them say no. So say, well, stay like that because I'm going to buy your cocoa and I'm going to pay you more than what you get uh, at the moment. And then he went to the U.S., I think to Oregon, to start how to make chocolate. He took a couple friends with him, couple uh, Edmund Brown, who still lives here inside the, uh, the chocolate company. They learned how to make chocolate. Then I think he talked to his parents and he got money to buy some old machinery to make the chocolate. They put all the machinery together there. They adapted and whatever to work with solar energy, some of it. And then eventually they brought it here. And they set up the first factory. So they started collecting the organic cocoa and, um, and start making the first chocolate. But you know a little bit the story about cocoa and chocolate. Cocoa only grows around the equator in mm -hmm. tropical places. Yep. And all the cocoa that these countries produce mostly have been exported to Europe, to the U.S., to make chocolate. Mm -hmm. But never really any company tried to make good chocolate in the place where the cocoa grows. 
And this was his big vision, you know? Yeah. Let's keep the value added for this chocolate right here. You know, why are we just exporting the cocoa and you getting paid so little when we can make chocolate, get more money for our chocolate, we can have cocoa butter, we can have cocoa powder, and, and the value added stay here with us. So that was his vision. And also he wanted to be sustainable. He, so he wanted to be uh, run with solar energy. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to be distributed uh, to places carbon-free. So he used to take his bars in a, in a, in a hobby cat and deliver them to Cariacu. And then he found a boat called the Tres Hombres. They was taking cargo, uh, carbon-free cargo. So they only go by sail from Holland to South America, coming here, picking up rum and taking it to Europe. So he, you know, after the company got going and everything, he actually filled up the boat with chocolate and sent it to Europe, carbon free. Wow. So, I mean, now that we see all of this and we are so worried about all our sustainability and all of that. And he had that vision way before all of us started even noticing what was happening with the world. Yeah. So when he told us that story, I just went like, oh my God, Maud, you had to tell more people about this. And right. she went, oh, you know, so nobody from a hotel or from tourists had invited me to ever talk about it or anything. I said, well, I inviting you. I want you to come and do more things with us and I want you to, you know, let's organize something that they can showcase the whole thing. And he went, yes, but I'm really busy because I'm sending this boat full of chocolate to Europe. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, when you come back, let me know. So time passed. He went to Europe. I, I, I did went to say bye-bye to him and the boat. And I saw how they were putting the bars in this amazing sailboat that looks like a from Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> it's the next time it's in, in Granada, you, should, you know, people should go and see it. It's an incredible boat. Yeah. Anyway, time passed and I didn't hear from him. And one day, I don't know, like six months later, I saw him by the roundabout, the sugar milk, you know, driving. I go, like, oh, Maud, you're back. And he go, yeah, yeah, we talk. So, okay, let's talk soon. And I think a week later is when he had his accident, he died. Oh. And that was really like a national tragedy because the chocolate really was kind of just taking on and, you know, being sold in Europe and all of that. And it was just so sad. And in my head, I stayed that thing about, you know, this is too good to die. Right. So I uh, I mentioned, I think somebody in the tourist board, like, how about organizing a chocolate festival? I said, but not like one of those chocolate festivals that you go and they give you chocolate to try and you go like, ah. Said, a chocolate festival where people come and look how at the cocoa plantation, at the cocoa pots, at, you know, at the farmers, meet the farmers, see how the chocolate's made, everything right here. And they were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Like a good idea, organize it. So I I organized the first one. Uh, I had help from from Chadel Chadel Nayak that she introduced me to some of the other farmers, and I told her about the project. And I don't know, you know Chadel, but she's always very excited about starting something. So she was wonderful, wonderful help and advice. So we organized and identified people that were reliable that we can, you know. Uh, do something. Mm-hmm. So we started the first chocolate festival, what was it, in 2015? Yeah, 2015. Okay. And uh, we only had like 
don't know, 20 people, I think. But we started. Mm-hmm. And then, and the 20 people, we had some chocolate. Oh, and then Mexico, I asked, you know, by then I, I had become the honorary consul of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I had a little bit of power with the embassy in, in San Lucio, Mexico. And I asked them if it was any chance that they can help bringing one of the chocolatiers from Mexico. And they did. So we had one lovely chocolatier from Mexico City, Ana Rita. That she opened the first chocolate museum in Mexico City. And you ever there, go and see her. It's fantastic. She's mm-hmm. an architect, too. Ah. <laughs> uh, they got involved with chocolate. And um, so she designed the museum and then she just become totally involved with chocolate and she came and, and she did some of the workshops and I started learning more. But of the 20 people we had, it was a couple chocolatiers, couple, uh, the, the tourism authority brought some, some people that were interested in chocolate and stuff. But what it makes me realize is that how little chocolatiers knew about cocoa and cocoa mm-hmm. production. And some of them, when they saw their first cocoa pot, they almost cried, you know. And they, and I was going like, but they chocolatiers, and they don't know what a cocoa pot looks like, yeah. and how oh. the beans look inside the cocoa pot, and how it gets fermented, and blah, 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 blah. So I thought, like, oh, my God, it's amazing. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody has put chocolate and cocoa together. Right. Or not many people. So, um, you know, then... I think this caught the attention of many people, and then I got invited to, to go to Cocoa Chocolate festivals, and I went to others, and then the Tourism Authority also started using it to promote Granada, and uh, and that's how we started, and mainly, I mean, the Chocolate Festival never has been a huge festival with a lot of people, but it has been a, a quality festival with a lot of people that really care. Right. And that has given a huge scope to the to the festival. And then I also, when I start going to other festivals and meeting more chocolatiers and meeting more people, I realized how Maud Green, with his little Granada chocolate company, was a pioneer. He was the first person that really had the bright idea to make a bar of fine chocolate where the chocolate grows, you know, and he mm. he had a lovely say. They say it takes it takes a village to make a bar of chocolate. <laughs> so you know, and then um, I, I mean, I started giving people ideas too because I thought, yeah, but you know, it's it's a whole industry there that we don't even know about it. So mm. I start asking people, can you make this? Can you do that? Can you do some art with cocoa? Can you make other things with cocoa butter, with chocolate? And a little, all these little crafts, you know, craft crafters, and they start making different things. And of course, um, we had before the Juve company that was already there. And Juve is, it was uh, mainly founded by an American company and is producing a little bit more um, a commercial chocolate. Mm-hmm. But then Crayfish Bay was one of the first farms that we approached to do something, and they only were growing cocoa. And then the next year they had a, they were doing a cocoa tea. And then the next year they start making, they had a chocolate. And then, um, so Crayfish Bay became a chocolate farm. And then um, it was another guy that came to the chocolate festival from England, and he had a little plantation. 
that his grandfather gave him, and he started the Three Island Chocolate Company based um, Aaron Sylvester. And then Chadel decided to part with the Granada Chocolate Company and start her chocolate company. So at the moment, we have five chocolate companies. It was another one that they started, but then they didn't follow. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, why, why, uh, you know, we only had this happening once a year, and people want to know more, and people want to do more. And it's when I had the idea of the House of Chocolate, where you can go and see the whole story of Granada with Coco and have tried the chocolates and that was an incredible success i really never thought it was going to be so amazing and successful and people were going to like it so much yeah whenever i'm home i absolutely love going to the house of chocolate because it's just such a nice space in the middle of town and then there's the smell of chocolate all around you and a lot of these stories i never even knew about you know the history of mont green and how that all started so kudos to you for for seeing that and and starting it up. Oh, thank you. But also, it's been, I don't know, once you get to, I think Coco and Chocolate just grabbed you because everybody that had told the story of I had taken them around, they just fall in love and start making chocolate or, or get more into how Coco and Chocolate. And I think Granada, and, and you know, uh, also Granada has influenced a lot of the other countries too because. I mean, Trinidad maybe have one little chocolate company now. I don't know how many they have, but they have a lot of chocolate companies. Also, the biggest bank of cocoa in the world is in the research center is in Trinidad. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Caribbean, I think it's seven of the countries that produce fine cocoa are in the Caribbean. So it's Lucia, oh. Granada, um, Dominican Republic, Trinidad. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so... Chocolate is something that the Caribbean really, really can take better advantage of, and especially Granada. And what is what classifies chocolate as fine chocolate? Okay, um, the you know the demand of the world in the world for cocoa is huge. I mean, we see all this candy and all this stuff that has chocolate. So what happened is uh, some company some countries and companies starting producing massive amounts of cocoa, okay? And uh, and also it's not being produced very ethically because they've been clear forced to, to plant cocoa trees where they didn't belong there. They use a slave to pick up the cocoa, a lot of children, especially in Africa. So, you know, it's just mainly like a big business. They call the cocoa. Who cares what the quality or anything? But like uh, fine cocoa, I think it's grown on places that are uh, a little bit more sustainable and natural, like in Granada, like we have in Clear Forest just to breed, to to uh, to, to um, uh, plant cocoa trees. You mm-hmm. have the cocoa tree with a banana tree, with a, a, a passion fruit tree, with a, a, you know, everything is right there. It's like a beautiful ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And now that we have learned that the trees communicate to each other, it makes so much sense that all these plants are being together, uh, working together to have that beautiful cocoa we have. But mainly, this cocoa has good flavor and it's being produced in some kind of sustainability or ethically. Uh, Dominican Republic has fine cocoa, mm-hmm. but they do produce quite a lot of cocoa too. 
but mainly it is uh, uh, an association that defines which, you know, the cocoa from a country is fine or is not. Okay. And, um, and all the production of cocoa in Granada is fine cocoa. Wow. And he said it's mostly ethically produced. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a great distinction to have. I, I didn't know that myself. So you seem to be very attuned to the chocolate industry and that market. What do you know in terms of kind of what jobs are available for people in who want to get involved in chocolate? Well, I mean, in a small scale, mm-hmm. it's not like something that's going to make you rich. Right. But I think uh, Crayfish Bay is a very good example of what happened. You know, like Crayfish Bay was just a cocoa farm. So they started and they still developing, you know, mm-hmm. like they started developing their first bar. Uh, the the guy, uh, Kim, the owns the farm with his wife, Lilette. Kim made machines that, because the machines are quite expensive. So he made mm-hmm. some machines that were kind of doing the job. Yeah. And, uh, so they started a whole industry. Now they had two different bars of chocolate. They produce cocoa powder. They produce cocoa. They they sell organic cocoa to Europe to some in a very small scale, no big scale. But mainly they they became a different business, you know, from that. Now cocoa butter, cocoa butter is something that is used for cosmetics. I just been this afternoon to a, a little market that was here at the, mm-hmm. the, the in Granans, and I saw one, two, three, four, five vendors using cocoa butter to make different uh, skincare products. Mm-hmm. So that is something that has come out actually, you know, because we all know cocoa butter is good for your hair and it's good for for your body, your skin. But yeah. these people are actually mixing it with other things to do that. Uh, I saw uh, a chocolate body scrubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, like in the house and chocolate, we're doing bonbons. You know, there is another thing. You can do cakes. You can do a lot of other things. There are people that are doing paintings with cocoa. So the artist can take that. It's a lady that made beautiful cocoa-shaped bags. They yeah. are incredible. Uh, it's people doing jewelry with cocoa, you know, the theme of cocoa. Um, and I'm sure we can develop quite a lot of the things. I mean, in Mexico, we have a hot uh, a, a sauce that is made with chocolate, mole. I know a local lady is making a, a chocolate hot sauce. Yeah. She created, this lady created a chocolate hot sauce, and she has a cocoa crunch that is like a candy that is delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the rum companies started the rum, the chocolate rum. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. mainly it's leaving your imagination free and see where it goes, you know. Uh, I know in Mexico they make ice cream with the pulp. Um, you can make liquor also with the, with the pulp. Yeah. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's really a lot, a lot of the, it things that, that we can do with it. And it's just uh, a specific jobs, I think it's more like, uh, we know that, I mean, one of the, the real sad things in Granada and in the world is le- the, the average age of our cocoa farmers is like 65 years old. And it's very, very few new 
farmers. And why? Well, because it's a, a, a very hard job, very badly paid. But if we really, I mean, at the moment, is the fine cocoa is trending. In Granada, cocoa is way up there. Right? It's something that people recall, oh, chocolate from Granada, oh my God. Yeah. So we just have to take better advantage of it. You know, the whole country and, and, and try to help the farmers to keep producing good cocoa and pay them a little bit more and training farmers. And that is really the biggest problem of the cocoa industry at the moment. We don't have many, many young people joining the industry. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody like Aaron Sylvester, he's, he's a youngest guy and he started the business and everything. And it's been very difficult for him, you know, to find his niche and everything. But he's trying. He's trying very hard. He's determined. And I think we just have more interest in the industry. And, and also, uh, you know, to talk bad about the government, but they really need to relook at the whole cocoa association because it's very unfair for the cocoa farmers. Totally yeah. unfair. Yeah. And, uh, and support them. You know, because yes, we know they they paying them peanuts for the cocoa, and and I mean we selling them to these companies. They are rich because they producing all these chocolates. They are you know massively produced. They are no ethical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and 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 I think uh, you know they just playing the game of the multinational companies buying the cocoa, and we should play our own game, the same. No, you know, our cocoa is a very good cocoa. It should be very special and it should have this price. Yeah. And I know sometimes it's very hard to compete with the world market and prices because, yeah, we have countries in Africa selling the cocoa super cheap. And now many other countries have joined. I was just, uh, in uh, two years ago, I was invited to Mexico City to, to a cocoa tasting for Latin America to try to put some parameters for what's fine cocoa for Latin America and all of that. Okay. And now all the countries are catching up, everything. I mean, Peru has some incredible chocolates, Colombia, um, Panama, everybody's in the game now. And, and you know, and, and really Granada was a, had a little bit of a part of this chocolate revolution going around, but, mm. but, uh, it's not just Grenada. It's like cocoa is something that governments don't look much at. And it's such a, a great opportunity to really um, inspire our, our farmers mm-hmm. and, and respect them for the job they do. And, and I mean, we have seen now with the COVID how dependent we became of our farmers in Grenada. Uh, I don't know if you've been here, but mainly, you know, like, all the farmers came out to sell their products. We realized that we have all these incredible products around that we can just have and, and be healthy and yeah. And uh, and you know, we need to support more all that agriculture uh, sector and stop building ugly buildings all over the place in agriculture land. It's, it's horrifying to see aguates. Yeah, it's it's really sad to see. Because agriculture is one of the, it's the thing that we have naturally, you know, you don't have to try very hard. It's just all around you in the volcanic soil and the climate that we have. And it's really not being put to the best use 
at all. So. And it's our future too, because I mean, we are an island and we have seen also at this time how difficult it's been to get food here from the outside, mm-hmm. you know, but having that comfort that, you know, that in your backyard, you have bananas and you can go and catch a fish and, and you have the herbs and all of these things is really, really wonderful. And it's a wonderful position to be, you know, a really sustainable agriculture country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and just really boost that in that that sector of the economy a lot more. Yeah, uh, and we don't think about it. We don't think about where our food comes from. No, we don't. Our fresh food, our healthy food, they help us grow. <laughs> you know, healthy and protect ourselves from illness and all of that. And so yeah, we never think about uh, it. It's something that a lot of young people don't understand mm-hmm. until it's too late. I know. So I think I, you know, we when when they were having the demonstrations about climate change around the world, we went to the to the uh, Grand Strand Dubai with our signs, you know, <laughs> you know, climate change, yeah. and my sign said "Stop building in agricultural land." And this man just shouted to me, "What do you know about building agricultural land? You just don't care about all the people that work in construction." And, you know, that's a stupid thing to say. He just shouted to me. <laughs> and I go like, well, if you don't have agriculture life, what are you going to eat? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he just went, ah, you crazy woman. But it, unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah. That the land is what brings our food. It doesn't come from the supermarket all the time from a shelf. <laughs> that came from somewhere and you want to know where it came from because... They put so many things in these processed foods these days. You don't know what you're eating. <laughs> exactly. All right. Yeah. Um, so is there anywhere that people who maybe want to learn more about chocolate production or about hospitality or, you know, any of these things, like one good place that they can go to find information? Well, um, hospitality, um, we had the Caribbean Hotel Association that has a lot of information in their website. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had the Caribbean Tourist Organization. They also have a lot of, a lot of uh, information. Uh, hospitality has been really terribly affected in the Caribbean at the moment. And we, well, we are part of it. And it's really, it's really, really hard. And, and you know, we all say like, Oh, we can't wait to go back to normal. But what is normal going to be? Because the way you travel before, you won't be able to travel it again. So we all had to look. My husband, we had a meeting the other day. He was saying we had to look at day one and how we're going to restart all of this because we had to rethink everything. And I know here in our hotel at True Blue Bay Resort, it's not every day, but really every other day, it's been a challenge to adapt to something different, to adapt something new to modify something so all the all, i think all the hospitality around the world and in the caribbean we had to to review and see how we going to become how we're going to get the tourists back how they're going to feel comfortable how you know we we offering what they want because the mass tourism i think the cruise ships and all that thing is going to take a long time to come and I think it's a wonderful opportunity to, to become sustainable and to 
think how can we use our natural resources and our, or the, in the beauty, the natural beauty of Granada to attract tourists without damaging it too, because it's, it's what we have and it's nothing else, you know, like, and, and also the people of Granada, the, the friendliness and all of this, because it, every island is different. I love the, one of the presidents of the Caribbean Tourist Organization said, you know, the Caribbean, one Caribbean country is one Caribbean country. It's like, we know all our Caribbean. We are not all the same, you know, it's like we all very different. And I think Granada has really and truly, after living in the Caribbean in many countries, some of the nicest people. We don't have mass tourism. So we have a great opportunity right now to go ahead and, and create really some good, sustainable attractions for 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 the public and, and promote that we are not a mass tourism island. Yeah. Okay, uh, where can you find more information about chocolate and cocoa? I don't think it's an specific site. Maybe just you just need to do a little bit of research in the internet mainly. I mean, there there is a Salon du Chocolat, and it's all these associations, but it's not really one place where you can find anything. Like I say, in Trinidad, they have the Cocoa Research Institute. They have some very good articles uh, in their website and papers that they have done. Um, you have the, I mean, mainly you just see about, read a little bit about ethical chocolate, ethical cocoa, uh, sustainability, what uh, tree to bar means. They means that you're making the chocolate in the same place where the trees grow. Mm. Being to bar, that means that you are making a chocolate from the beans, not just buying the chocolate and using it. You're making chocolate from the beans. Okay. So it's different things, but uh, I probably the best school is to participate at the Granada Chocolate Festival. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Magdalena, thank you so much for everything we talked about today. I think I think what I found most interesting and what I really liked about it is that we talked about people from lots of different backgrounds who are kind of participating, like finding careers in different ways and organically just getting into um, things that they're interested in. So, for instance, you had your background in architecture you spoke about a few other architects that you know and then I think Mott was an engineer so these are all backgrounds in in what we like to call steam disciplines so science technology engineering architecture math but they all come together to create the things that we live with you know like manufacturing cocoa you don't just need one type of person you need different people who have different experiences different backgrounds and can bring that together to to create something wonderful. So I love that we were able to talk about that today. Well, yeah, that's the way, you know, like uh, uh, I learned the meaning of one one love, one <laughs> world, because mm -hmm. we all connected. I mean, one or no, we all connected. We all depend on each other. We, we, we cannot just live isolated and, you know, nothing else. Uh, in, uh, and also, it's very important that we respect each other's profession and each other's opinions because we know 
think the same or do the same. Some some of us are smarter, some of us are not that smart. Uh, you know, some of us like certain things. We believe in different things. But I think respect for everybody and and really always whatever you do, you have to think that it's connected to everything else. Mm-hmm. It's connected to other people. It's connected to other things you are. You know, we all energy and the energy is just moving around and moving around and, and it's up to us how we use it. And it's been lovely, lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. So thank you once again. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us on today's past week. This episode was brought to you by the True Blue Bay Boutique Resort. Need a reprieve after the quarantine life? Book a vacation or staycation today. Take your friends out for a lime down by Dottie Dock. Go sample some of the goodies at their new bakery or curl up with a book surrounded by the sweet smells of Grenadian chocolate at the House of Chocolate Museum Cafe. Whatever you're looking for, they've got it. For more information about offerings and upcoming events at True Blue Bay or the House of Chocolate, call 473-443-8783 today. That's 473-443-8783.